You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. When I was a little kid, I got lost in the Red Desert. It's a giant basin in southern Wyoming. At least my mom thought I got lost. We'd driven out to the Red Desert to visit my dad, who was working as a roughneck on an oil rig. We knew we were someplace special when we saw a cloud of dust, and as we got closer, saw it was a herd of wild horses, running, manes streaming. We slept in my dad's travel trailer on the work site. They never let you do that these days. Surrounded by sand. Pink, yellow sand. I don't know where we were, but it must have been near the Kilpecker Dunes, the largest living sand dunes in the U.S., 55 miles across. For my brother and me, the urge to wander out into the dunes was irresistible. So when my mom wasn't looking, we gave in to the call of the wild, and instantly we were engulfed by open space. The Red Desert is the largest unfenced area in the continental U.S., and we felt it. We didn't know we were lost, but all that wildness freaked my mom out. She got our friend Robert, who was working on the rig with my dad, to go find us. I guess because she was too nervous to wander out into all that space herself. When Robert appeared, he didn't tell us that we were lost. He admired the big hole that we'd dug in the sand and led us back to camp. That was the end of that. But the incident left an impression on my mom, who realized the danger of kids in a wilderness, but also on me, that pure experience of solitude in a very wild place. I've been back there since to camp by a little spring at the foot of a cliff. All the same exhilaration returned, plus a new understanding of the place, how fragile that pool of water was where all the birds stopped to swim, where the wild horses came to drink, where the coyotes howled at the full moon where hundreds of elk migrated past on their way north, and yes, where cattle grazed along the banks. Today, I'm headed back out to the Red Desert in the company of Eric Mulvar. He's a wildlife biologist who's written a slew of hiking guides about the American West, not to mention a beautiful photography book called Wyoming's Red Desert. Eric looks like the kind of guy who's hiked hundreds of miles, tall and lanky with black hair and a beard and eyes that often seem to be squinting out at a distant horizon. These days, Eric is also the director of Western Watersheds, an environmental group. To Eric, the Red Desert has that same kind of specialness it has for me, 
probably more, since over the years he's hiked nearly every square inch and knows lots of its secrets, like where to find the crazy rock hoodoos and the sage-grouse mating sites and the petroglyphs sacred to local tribes. Well, the Red Desert could be a national park for its sagebrush ecosystem values and it has spectacular landscapes too in some areas. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a national treasure, but the federal government doesn't treat it like one. What he's talking about there is that a lot of the Red Desert is managed by the Bureau of Land Management, and ranchers are given leases on that land to graze their cattle. In Eric's opinion, way too many grazing leases. Today's goal is to see the effects of all that grazing and to dig into just what are the environmental impacts of livestock, not to just someplace like the Red Desert, but to the world. We climb in his SUV and start heading west on I-80. It's going to be a long drive. So along the way, Eric tells me the story of how, after pioneers arrived, when the government set out to manage all the cows roaming across the American West, that turned out to be a complex and sometimes confrontational endeavor. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Remember that TV Western bonanza about a Nevada ranching family? I used to love watching reruns in the middle of the day when I stayed home sick from school. Look at it, Adam. East thine eyes and a sight that approacheth heaven itself. You've been to a lot of places and you've seen a lot of things, Pa. But you've never seen or been to heaven. <laughs> well, maybe I've never been to heaven. Maybe I'm never going to get the chance. But heaven is going to have to go some to beat the thousand square miles of the Ponderosa. As long as it's ours. There it is again. That deep pioneer love of the land and the terror of losing it. Eric says... There wasn't much chance of that after all the bison were slaughtered and large numbers of indigenous people annihilated. For European colonizers now in control of all this land, the operative word really was bonanza. Back in the 1800s and early 1900s, anybody could put whatever livestock out on the land they wanted for free. It was called the public domain and the federal government didn't charge anything to run cattle or sheep out and out there on the public lands. We like to think of that era as pastoral, hardworking families building a homestead with their own bare hands. But Eric says a lot of the land was controlled by big business. And so what ended up happening was that the big ranching conglomerates, by hook or by crook, homesteaded up all the lands on springs and along streams and rivers that were permanently flowing because if you could control the water then you could control all the land surrounding it and if you could prevent somebody else's cattle and sheep from coming to take a drink then you could keep them off vast areas of dry land surrounding that and you could monopolize those public lands for your cattle's operation or your sheep operation 
And so, even though the Plains Indian Wars were now over, fighting in the West continued. This time, Europeans fought against each other. You know, back in those days, there were hot wars between different cattle operations and, and different cattle and sheep operations all over Wyoming, where, where uh, herders were being shot and killed, sheep wagons were being burned, herding dogs were tied to the sheep wagons and burned with the sheep wagons. Sheep were being shot and poisoned and, and driven off of cliffs. It was, it was the Wild West, and it was all about controlling all of the access to this free grazing that was big money to be made at that time. But then ranchers started using a newfangled invention in the late 1800s that changed everything, barbed wire. It put a permanent end to the era of the great cattle drives. One rancher sent a letter to barbed wire's inventor, Joseph Glidden, raving about how wonderful it was. Takes no room, exhausts no soil, sheds no vegetation, is proof against high winds, makes no snow drifts, and is both durable and cheap. Containing cows had always been a big headache. Before barbed wire, people had to build fences out of wood. Doing that across the vast expanses of the West? No way! Historians say it was barbed wire that tamed the West. But Eric says this obstacle of migration has hurt wildlife across the West ever since. The Red Desert is the winter destination for the longest mule deer migration in the world, 150 miles from their summer range in the mountains up near Jackson Hole. Elk and pronghorn also migrate vast distances to reach this place. And that has been a serious issue for pronghorn in the Red Desert, particularly when they had the woven wire fences for sheep in a lot of places back in the 1960s and 70s. Those are largely replaced by three-strand barbed wire fences now, which are still a problem for pronghorns, but they're not a complete barrier always. Pronghorn don't like leaping fences like deer or elk. They try to go under. Their legs get tangled in the wire, they can't escape, and they die trying. By the turn of the century, barbed wire was a powerful tool strung up everywhere. Ranchers were even fencing off public lands for their own use. America had only just invented this idea of public lands and was still figuring out the logistics. How to limit who could graze on it. In the Red Desert, Eric says itinerant Basque sheep herders used to trail their flocks from the Wyoming range to the Red Desert and back every year. The Basques didn't own land but they used up a lot of the grasses. The cattle ranchers around Rock Springs started spoiling for a fight. These Basque sheep herders would come through with their millions of sheep and the sheep would be like locusts. It would be like a plague of locusts. They would eat every stick of vegetation that, as they moved through. And these ranchers that were tied to the land said, you know, there's nowhere, you know, our cattle are now starving. And so, and there were even in the Wyoming range, soil pedestals that were six feet tall with little tussocks of grass on top left showing where the original topsoil used to be, where everything else had been eroded away. And by the time the Dust Bowl hit, Congress finally acted and they passed what was called the, the Taylor Grazing Act. And the Taylor Grazing Act was there largely to say, you can no longer graze for free on the public lands, and under the new rule, you had to own some land to get a lease. That cut out the Basque sheep herders and their roaming flocks. 
The Taylor Act set up a system of leasing public lands for a small fee to landowners, but it didn't really help. The land was looking worse and worse. The grazing permits are designed to be 10-year leases. And at the end of 10 years, the original intention was that there was going to be an environmental assessment and they were going to look at the level of impact and make adjustments if there are ecological problems. And the reality is is about 40% of these grazing allotments across the American West have never had a land health assessment across 40 or 50 years. They weren't enforcing the laws already on the books, but still, in the 70s and 80s, the government passed more laws to control the amount of grazing. The U.S. developed what's called the Animal Unit Month Program, or AUMs. That's a way to charge ranchers a fee for each cow-calf pair. Sounds fair, right? Problem is, it's never had any teeth, Eric says. When you have a cow-calf pair out there for a month, that costs a rancher $1.35 nationwide on Bureau of Land Management and Forest Service lands. That is a pittance. The law doesn't allow the fee to go any lower than $1.35, but it hasn't gone much higher since the law was passed either. Even President Biden agreed to keep it at just $1.35 this year. Eric says, meanwhile, when ranchers charge each other to lease a cow-calf pair on private property, they charge around $22. So essentially, the, uh, the taxpayers are, are giving away the public lands for livestock grazing at a rate that is a tiny fraction of what that fair market value for grazing is on the, on the open market. These federal grazing allotments fight so hard for them because it's almost like free money. Eric says the formula for figuring out the fee is based on a base rate from 1966. Adjusted for inflation, it should now be over $7 per pair. Eric says the reason these programs are so lenient is because the ranching industry in the West struggles to be profitable, and it's one way for the federal government to help it survive. Well, I think that there's a certain level of desperation in the livestock industry, and in particular, small operations that are really struggling financially because they're trying to raise livestock that were really bred for moist climates in an arid environment. And so economically and ecologically, it's a marginal prospect to start with. They're faced with then, you know, drought and and financial difficulties. They're forced to choose between ecological sustainability and economic survival. They're choosing economic survival every time at the cost of the land. And that's one of the great tragedies of the American West. That desperation of ranchers is getting worse as droughts and climate change put the heat on. Some ranchers feel like the government just keeps piling on more rules and regulations. And it's made them angry and afraid for their survival. But now, that desperation is getting exploited by anti-government extremist groups. And there have been ranchers who've joined efforts to get states to take over management of federal public lands. The most infamous case, of course, was the armed takeover of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge for a month in 2016 by a militia group led by Eamon Bundy. 
But Eric says that wasn't the only public land standoff. But there have also been other smaller um, examples of this happening all over the West, where individual ranchers will threaten the Bureau of Land Management employees with, um, with death or bodily injuries. There have been bombings at uh, BLM offices or even the homes of BLM officials that have been traced back to livestock permittees. And this has been a, a simmering problem since at least the 1940s. Eric tells the story of one defiant rancher in northern Wyoming's Bighorn Basin, whose case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2007. There was a, a rancher by the name of Frank Robbins, who's, you know, who's got land up there still, who basically tried to prosecute the BLM for, you know, trying to manage its own lands. And basically what he did is he put lock gates up on roads leading to public lands and said, you can't cross. And that includes you, Bureau of Land Management. You can't access your own land. Robbins felt like the feds were forcing an easement across his land on him that he didn't know about when he bought the land. That's according to a summary of the case by Harvard Law Today. All but two judges disagreed, though, and the case didn't advance. Robbins is well-connected from a wealthy family in Alabama. The fact that his case made it that far shows that ranchers aren't always the underdogs depicted in the pulp western novels. Actually, Eric says there's a great deal of political power behind the ranching industry. In fact, the agriculture lobby is one of the most powerful in Washington. And there's just as much sway at the local level, with ranchers filling many of the political seats from county commissioner on up, creating a kind of political pipeline. And all this simmering conflict has made it very complicated for the federal government to enforce its grazing rules. More on that when we come back. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. Outside Rollins, Wyoming, we head north on a route I've taken often in my travels around the state. Colorful, crooked geology rises up on either side of the highway like shelves of books tipped over. After a while, Eric turns on his blinker, and we make a left down a long, straight road headed into what appears to be nowhere land. I've always wanted to turn down this road. This is called the Mineral X Road, or you know, it was originally the Mineral Exploration Road, and it, there's an old uranium um, mill that's out here that's been shuttered for many, many years. And, and where are we headed up, kind of into the, this ridge here? Uh, well, we're headed out into the. It, it, this is called Separation Flats, uh-huh. and um, this is part of the Red Desert. That's one of those checkerboard areas. So okay. this area we're heading into here is an area that uh, is used for. Um, feed lines in the winter and spring. What is a feed line? And a, and a feed line is, we'll go ahead and just pull up and have a look here. Okay. This is where we're headed. Oh, great. A feed line is uh, an area where a rancher will come out and they'll uh, take hay and they'll chuck it off the back of a truck so the cattle in a line so that the cattle will come in and feed on the hay. Yeah. And as you can see, you know, this is an area that, you know, I mean, it's an area of concentrated animal use and concentrated animal impact. All right, let's go check it out. 
It's a warm, calm autumn day, unseasonably warm. We climb out and walk across the flats. The ground is weird, hard pan, the color and texture of concrete almost, only intricately cracked like a porcelain cup. What are you seeing in terms of land health out here? Well, I mean, basically, this is this, this little area here is basically completely desertified. And there's nothing left in terms of native bunch grasses out here. All you see is uh, maybe a little gardener salt bush, um, maybe some halogeton and other, other weed species. Um, but basically, this, you know, the native vegetation out in this area has been pretty heavily impacted by overgrazing and also by just the compaction of the, the cattle hooves, you know, the, the high concentration of livestock in a small area, in, in, in the feedline area. And as you look across the landscape, as you look in this direction, you can see, I mean, there's just, you know, there's just cow pies as far as the eye can see. And that's from the heavy concentration of livestock in a, in a small area. And Eric says for an area like this to recover, cattle would have to stop feeding on it for decades, maybe even up to 100 years. It reminds me of something the author Wallace Stegner once said. I think we lost the, the, the chance to, to develop a, a much more stable society in the West and one that wouldn't have destroyed so much of, of a, a marvelous part of the world. Uh, and left it wounded because the, the, the West being an arid country doesn't heal. You can still see General Patton's tank tracks from World War II, training for World War II down in the desert. Nothing heals. Looking at this white, hard earth, that phrase comes to mind. Nothing heals. Eric says the worry is that when plants do grow again here, It'll be cheatgrass, an invasive plant that came over from Europe with the pioneers. It spread very rapidly, and its basic cause is overgrazing by livestock. It's a, a primary colonizer of disturbed lands. Disturbed lands like these. A big threat of cheatgrass is that it tends to burn, and when it does, those fires, they're huge and fast. You start getting these unnaturally large fires out in the range that wipe out the sagebrush and because the native bunch grasses have been suppressed and are dying off, what you get in the wake of those fires is cheatgrass monoculture. And that cheatgrass is really poor wildlife habitat. It's basically a biological desert. Eric says Fewer cows on the land could help slow the spread of cheatgrass. But couldn't fewer wild horses help as well? Driving in, I keep an eye out for those clouds of dust I'd seen as a kid. But Eric tells me there are fewer horses these days because the BLM has been rounding them up. And in only a few days, they plan to gather another 4,000. To Eric, the whole thing doesn't make sense. They're taking the wild horses off the public lands to make more room for cattle in an area that's completely unsuited for cattle. Mm -hmm. And in the Midwest, they're bumping cattle off of pastures that are suited to cattle so they can put wild horses out there <laughs> at taxpayer expense. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Eric considers the wild horses a historical treasure and a great tourist attraction for the Red Desert. But for me, not so sure. 
As a kid, spotting wild horses made me feel part of the Wild West, as exciting as seeing a bear. But as an adult, I can see it's way more complicated. Like cattle, horses are a transplant that are adding to the intense pressure on these lands and creating more conflicts between ranchers and the government. But I do agree with Eric that the battles like these rage on in part because places like the Red Desert are off people's radar. Most people couldn't point out the Red Desert on a map, and that makes it feel disposable. Eric says, we sort of think of the Red Desert and a lot of the West as beef factories, land where we grow young cows until they're big enough to go to the feedlot. That metaphor of the beef factory comes up again in another conversation, this time over Zoom. Mike Grunewald is the host of the podcast Climavores. Plus, he's most of the way through writing a book. I'm working on a book on how to feed the world without frying the world. Talking to me on his phone as he paces around his house in a rumpled t-shirt, he looks a little harried by all these projects he has in the air. But that's because he's passionate about the story he has to tell about food and climate. Mike says it's not just places like the Red Desert that are beef factories. You know, the earth is really becoming an animal farm. And two-thirds of all agricultural land is used to feed livestock, either through pure grazing or by growing grain uh, to feed to our livestock. So that's really where they cause the most problems, and it's a very big problem. A very big problem that's growing as more of the planet is taken over for agriculture to feed an ever-expanding human population. You know, the entire food system is about a third of all emissions. And depending on how you do the math, you could make the case that livestock is more than half of that agricultural and food problem. And the reason livestock contributes so much to climate change is, well, you know. You hear a lot about the... Uh, the burps and farts, and that is a real problem. They create a lot of methane in their stomachs that they release out into the world. And the longer they're wandering around in their pastures, the more methane they're releasing. And methane is one of the worst greenhouse gases there is. Conscientious foodies like me and my friends, we try to buy only grass-fed beef, imagining a cow roaming the open range, snow-capped mountains in the background. But Mike says grass-fed cows take quite a bit longer to grow, big enough to slaughter. That means they're doing a lot more burping and farting than a feedlot-finished cow. But cows contribute to carbon emissions not just with methane released from their guts, but also the methane and nitrous oxide that's created by their manure, mostly methane in the kind of feedlots and dairies and other sort of managed manure situations um, where they're in a lagoon or a pit. Um, and it's mostly nitrous oxide um, when they're just pooping and peeing out on the open range. Nitrous oxide is also a terrible greenhouse gas. Not to mention that cows often graze in places that have been deforested. So far, the only reliable technology that anyone has developed for removing carbon from the atmosphere at scale is vegetation. It's trees. But a lot of carbon is also stored in the soil. Good soil, that is. Thick, spongy, black soil. 
not the kind of white hardpan we see at the feedline in Separation Flats. Less grazing in the Red Desert could help store more carbon, especially around places like that spring I visited at the foot of the cliff. The rich soil around such places can't store much carbon when it's been damaged by a lot of cow hooves. So yeah, Mike says, cows are a major contributor to climate change. And that means out here in the West, we have the two most problematic industries plopped in our laps. Well, look, uh, fossil fuels are a really big problem. And right now, they're still a bigger problem than our food problem. But the thing about fossil fuels is that at this point, we've been working on getting away from them for a long time, and we pretty much know what to do about them. We've got to essentially electrify the global economy and transition to zero emissions electricity. That's a lot easier to say than it is to do, but that's what we got to do. Agriculture and food is a much harder problem, and we've really just begun to start dealing with it. And honestly, we still don't even know how to do it. First of all, Mike says, we've got to have the will to solve the problem. So there isn't a lot of you know, political momentum behind the kind of you know, solutions that are going to take research and development and deployment um, to try to reduce the emissions from these practices that not everybody likes in the first place. So there's a lot of opportunity to maybe make beef better, but right now that's being held up by people who are happy to make beef the way they're already making it and people who don't want to make beef at all. The vegan versus the cowboy. Like lots of problems in our country, the two ends of the spectrum aren't talking to each other or opening their minds to real solutions. Mike says both those groups will need to adapt, and soon. For ranchers, that might mean letting go of some of the rigid insistence on ranching just the way Grandpa did. Mike says the time has come for both sides to kick into emergency mode since we're fast approaching the 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming. That's the threshold before the droughts and wildfires and depleted water become too extreme for us to live with. But Mike says the solution to the livestock problem isn't necessarily going 100% vegetarian. Over the next few decades, you know, billions of people who are poor today and eating virtually no meat are expected to join the meat-eating middle class. And of course, that's a great thing. Um, we want them to be able to have a more nutritious diet. Um, and a more enjoyable diet because meat's delicious. Um, but that said, you know, the average American eats three burgers a week, and that's not going to be sustainable. Mike says there are exciting new technologies to inhibit the nitrification of manure. And I recently came across some great results adding seaweed to livestock feed to reduce methane in cow burps. These things could make beef more sustainable. Even Eric Molvar isn't envisioning a cow-free red desert. He just wants the BLM and the Forest Service to enforce their own rules. He wants them to cough up the money to hire more range managers to monitor the land. Not from some office somewhere, but out here, on the ground, adjusting the number of cattle as droughts worsen and cheatgrass spreads. And I think that there's a real question that, that we as a nation need to grapple with, which is, what are these public lands really most valuable for? 
are they most valuable for livestock production or how much oil and gas and coal and minerals you can you can extract from them or really are they more valuable as healthy native ecosystems and as open spaces for public recreation and enjoyment and increasingly it's becoming obvious in a shrinking planet with a growing human population that having big open lands might be more valuable for their native wildlife might be more valuable for having healthy ecosystems than for any of the private commercial exploitation that that happens out there which sounds really lofty right but i know the intrinsic value of the red desert i have childhood memories here eric knows its value but there's this little niggly thing bothering me I mean, when you drive along the interstate, if you're driving, say, from you know Salt Lake City to Denver and you come through this area and you look out across the Red Desert, it's hard to see it as a national park. People don't see it that way. Well, if you drive along the interstate, you're driving through all that oil and gas wasteland and empty country, and it doesn't look like much. I can see I've touched a nerve for Eric. This is his life's work, to teach people the value of wild places far off the beaten path. If you get out beyond the, the highway and back into the, the hinterlands, there are some really spectacular landscapes and some really untouched, ecologically vibrant areas. And just the wide open country of sagebrush that stretches for miles. This yeah. is probably the last fence for 50 miles going west here across the public lands. And it's pretty rare to find a place that's that undeveloped left in North America or even the world. Every time I come to the Red Desert, I leave with one of its gifts. As we drive out of Separation Flats, we spot two wild horses, a mare and her colt. I can see their ribs showing. Yet another reminder, out here, there's just not enough grass to go around. Next time on The Modern West, the calves leave the open range and head to the feedlot. We'll tag along to learn more about animal welfare in the ranching industry. And we'll chat with Temple Grandin about it. Well, we've gotten to tolerate too many dirty cattle now, and there's a lot more cattle they're putting in the pens. And I think this is something that's slowly crept up. That's what I call bad becoming normal. That's part five of The Great Individualist. Have you seen the impacts of livestock on the places you love? Share your stories with us on social media at Modern West Pod. I'm Melody Edwards. Tennessee Watson is our story editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Noah Greenspan is assistant producer. Anna Rader is marketing coordinator. To see Anna Castro's photographs of the Red Desert and those wild horses, go to our website at themodernwest.org. Thanks also for help from Sarah Ann Leverett and Diane Berner. History reenactment by Sheldon Williams. Original music by Julian Saperiti. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch, 
The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.